I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> Yay! There's a lot of excitement around this 2001 film directed by Peter Jackson, screenplay by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson, based on the novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Calleros. Hi. So before we jump into this episode, we all want to thank the patrons for making this possible. Mm-hmm. We hit our goal of passing 500 patrons on Patreon, which unlocked this three-part series that we are beginning today on Lord of the Rings, culminating in a patron-exclusive episode on the Hobbit trilogy, which is going to be a <laughs> lot of fun. <laughs> so thank you to all of you guys that have made this possible. We love you. And now we get to talk about Lord of the Rings. So we're very excited about that. Yeah. Let us begin our journey through Middle Earth. So I think it'd be fun to kind of talk about uh, our first experiences with Lord of the Rings and how that journey has uh, progressed over time. So like, I remember seeing the movies when they first came out. I was in high school, 2001. I was what, 14, 15, I guess. Uh, And I remember going to the theater basically because only because it was there was so much hype around it. And Mm -hmm. it was this huge new thing. I am not someone that likes my fantasy with swords and horses and dragons. I prefer my fantasy with lightsabers and (laughs) spaceships. Uh, So there was a lot of hurdles in the way for me. But I kind of got into it watching this first movie, The Fellowship in the Theater, despite all these like the barriers that I had. But I remember being very upset at the end of the movie when it just ended. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wait, they didn't. They didn't do the the ring. Like, what? (laughs) It just ended. I knew that there were going to be more, but I didn't know it was like three parts and not, you know, three movies more like Star Wars, where each one is a self contained thing. Mm -hmm. So I went in skeptical, got hooked, and then was upset, and then was upset basically until the two towers. And then around the time the two towers came out is when I really got into it and then became obsessed. And when the DVDs came out, that's when I watched them all over and over again. But I hadn't watched them probably in 10 years. Uh, it's definitely been a long time. So it was fun to revisit and uh, relive the memories and relive the filmmaking that was happening in 2001. There's a lot of it's weird to have lived through an era of filmmaking that I think is distinct enough to go back and mm-hmm. watch and be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of how they made movies 20 years ago, which is weird. Literally been 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, but so, Alex, what about you? I want to hear your your journey with Lord of the Rings. I was a freshman in high school when it, when Fellowship came out. And the year before in eighth grade, I read The Hobbit and like did a book report on it in English class. So mm-hmm. I was familiar with The Hobbit and I liked The Hobbit. And so I knew the kind of backstory going into Lord of the Rings, but I had not read the actual Lord of the Rings trilogy, the books. So I went into the movie, you know, already liking the story world and excited to see what it meant to have this whole story after The Hobbit. Uh, so I was pretty hooked from the beginning. As soon as Gollum appeared in like the opening prologue, I was like, oh my God, it's like from The Hobbit. And like, uh-huh. oh, there's the, there's the <laughs> Hobbit. Uh, so, so the movie had me because of my previous knowledge of some middle earthiness. Mm-hmm. I had the same experience of, you know, I was just kind of immersed in this story world for the duration of the film and then had that weird feeling of like, wait, what? 
they, we just faded to black. Wait, that was it. They, that, that's Mordor right there. And they're like walking towards it. And like, this is the part where they like put the ring in the fire. But like, what? And of course, you know, now looking back on it, we have so many movie franchises like the whole Avengers Marvel thing where you kind of expect these movies to be installments that don't really have their own self-contained conclusion. But this was really new, I think, at the time. Like, I had never seen movies at this scale kind of being treated like installments in more of like an episodic series. Mm-hmm. So it was disconcerting. And so I I left the theater with kind of like an awkward feeling of like, I don't know what to make of that. But then I saw it multiple times in theaters, got obsessed, got the DVDs, got the extended editions, watched all the special features, which mm-hmm. <laughs> made you fall in love with the movies like 10 times more because, you know, at that time, that was about the peak of my like aspiring filmmakerness, and these movies really pushed me over the edge and i i really credit the incredible behind the scenes featurettes on those extended mm-hmm. edition dvds with really like cementing my dedication to film because watching this team in new zealand of you know not hollywood types but these like very earnest yeah. The Weta Workshop and Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens and the whole cast and crew, this like lovable band of New Zealanders <laughs> who just really wanted to make these awesome movies and did it with so much heart and love and lack of cynicism. Mm-hmm. It was it was everything that I imagined like making a great movie could be. And, and, and they were doing it like in the way that I wanted to be doing it. These movies have a very special place in my heart because they really are the reason maybe why I'm here because I I had those early Steven Spielberg inspirations, but I think Peter Jackson and his vision and the love in these movies is what cemented it of like, no, no, I want to make movies. I want to be in that crew in New Zealand doing this. This is like the life I want. So, so thank you, Lord of the Rings for that. (laughs) Cool. Trisha, what about you? Yeah. um, It, it has been a journey, I guess. Uh, I didn't like, this movie when it came out. Um, But that was not the movie's fault. That was like a weird situation I was in. I was the same age as you guys, Michael and Alex. uh, So probably a freshman in high school. And the hype around this movie was incredible, which is interesting to think about considering what it's adapted from, which was a fantasy novel from the late 1950s uh, (laughs) that like our hippie parents were into. And, you know, maybe we can get into some of the history of all of that. But like, there was a huge wave of epics that happened between 1995 and like 2005, essentially, where before superhero movies were the biggest budget thing that you could make, an epic was the biggest budget thing that you could make. And Braveheart, studios, Troy, Gladiator. Studios really were mm-hmm. making that. Braveheart mm-hmm. was 1995. Titanic was 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1998 was Shakespeare in Love, Saving Private Ryan, The Thin Red Line. So there's right. war epics there. Phantom Menace was 99. Like 2000 Gladiator, Crouching Tiger. Like these three hour kind of like big, sweeping, romantic, huge movies and then 2001 if you remember was fellowship also the first harry potter movie Mm -hmm, which was based on like an enormous book series and then they were also making historical epics they made pearl harbor they made a beautiful mind which was this big you know award winner thing planet of the apes they made as well in 2001 they made a ton of these Uh, and and (laughs) for this one for me just kind of was like i'm a star wars person myself and i hadn't read the books and i didn't know anything about them didn't hadn't read the hobbit 
So the hype really just kind of like didn't do much for me. And then I got talked into going to see Fellowship late in the run, which it ran forever. It was Mm. in theaters forever. Mm. But a friend of mine talked me into going to see it. And even like months into the run, it was like in a big sold out show. (laughs) And she had seen it like two or three times already. And she was like, come with me and see it. So we sat there and then she ditched me in the movie theater and left me there to go get Chinese food and never came back. And how dare she? I I mean, I to this day don't understand it. So I was left sitting by myself in like the last row of the movie theater, seeing a movie I didn't know anything about (laughs) that I didn't have any connection to that was really dark and darker than I thought it was going to be. And we can talk about the darkness, but I really didn't like it (laughs) since then. (laughs) Lots of emotional like reasons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Since then. I have come to just respect so much about these movies and like of all of the epics that I named and I have a whole list that I could keep going because they kept making them after this because <laughs> they were still making all the money and winning all the awards. Um, but out of, out of this entire huge list of epics that they made from 1995 to basically all the way until Avatar, which was sort of the last great epic. I mean, is it better? I think it, it is better than any single one of the prequels to the Star Wars prequels. I I think it's more fun to watch than Saving Private Riot or Braveheart or The Last Certainly. Samurai or Master yeah. and Commander. Like those historical epics don't quite have the same thing as this. And yet in a lot of ways, even though this is fantasy, it feels like a historical epic. And so I don't know, we can get into that too, but I just, yeah. these are really, really great, well-made films and um, yeah, nothing but, nothing but respect in my heart it's really really impressive yeah absolutely i feel like regardless of how you your personal feelings on the movies or how you enjoyed them or whatever right i feel like respect must be paid to these movies because they are big time epic and they're they made the hell out of them yeah they did kind of a miracle that they got made at all and they are what they are it's like so many miracles for sure for sure brian tell us about your relationship with lord of the rings um, yeah, like Alex, I had read The Hobbit um, and I actually read it, I think, in fourth grade. So it was like very formative for me. The Hobbit and Phantom Tollbooth and, you know, some of these other um, books, some of which were not fantasy things. But I, I just remember like wanting to learn runes and would like sketch runes on things like, at, you know, eight years old or something. I'm like, <laughs> runes. Um, and, uh, and yeah, something about just the the magic of it and the the woodsiness of it and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. I just, I just really love The Hobbit. So yeah, I read it again, I think in seventh grade. So, and I tried to read Lord of the Rings when I was around that age and I was just too young. I was like yeah. 12 or 13. It was just, you know, I almost stepped outside of my body and was like, I think you're too young for this. <laughs> like <laughs> an older me stepped in and said, just hang on. But yeah, so I definitely came to Middle Earth with that with that love. And then when the movies were coming out, I, I really didn't pay that much attention to it. I was in college. I was like 19. I was at the most cynical, you know, stage of my life, probably. So I was just, oh, they're Hollywood is making is taking this book and turning it into a movie. Elijah Wood is playing the main <laughs> Hobbit. That seems yep. ridiculous, you know, this like American pretty boy. So I wasn't like anti it as much as I just was very kind of, eh, we'll see, kind of thing. And I did see it in the theater, and I thought it was, I thought it was cool like i didn't actually have a strong reaction to it in the theater but then you're in college so of course you you know you go find the screener 
and <laughs> you watch it again with your friends after like during award season. Mm-hmm. So I, I watched it again and I and I started to kind of something started to click a little, but uh, I liked it enough that then when the extended DVD came out, I bought that the you know sort of came like this leather bound book with all the discs inside. Yeah. And like sketches Among the and everything. coolest DVDs ever. Yeah. Yes, I'm so sad absolutely. I don't have it. Really. The uh, the box sets have gotten more expensive and less cool as the as they get more yeah. and more high def, which makes me sad. Watching the extended version of Fellowship, I really fell in love with the movie. Just getting more of that character work and those little moments, which we can talk about later. But uh, it actually felt like a shorter movie to me. Like it felt it felt because it wasn't sort of now we're going here now we got to go here. And it sort of felt like it was taking time to breathe, and that was real where I started to really connect to it. And then, like you said, Alex, just watching. The special features, all the little featurettes and everything, watching it with commentary with the cast. And Mm -hmm. it it just gave me this like very warm feeling of these movies were made with a lot of love and Mm -hmm. by people who loved each other and were very serious about what they were doing. And it just made me sort of fall in love with not just the movies, but with the with the production of the movies and with everything sort of surrounding them, the music and the the artwork and everything. There's a video game, Battle for Middle Earth. It's like a real-time strategy game from 2003 or something. And I'll play that game every couple of years just because they use like Howard Shore's music and they use some clips from the movies. And I'm just like, I get to be inside Middle Earth. (laughs) And not in the way of like, it's a more arcadey game where you're like fighting. It's like, I know I'm looking down on my like little town that I'm building. It's just, just little things like that where it's like, I have such a connection to that world that even something that reminds me of it, like hearing the score or something will just bring me back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the love that you're talking about is is like palpable almost. And yes. like as mm-hmm. much as Middle Earth is a world that you can get lost in, I feel like the movies themselves and the lore around the movies and especially yeah, that that era where DVDs were at you know the height of their popularity and they mm-hmm. could release three hour documentaries for each one where you could go and like just soak in every little piece of you could see the care they put into making the chain mail like chain by chain just the minutiae like all of that as deep as the world of middle earth is i feel like the the world of these movies is also as deep and that's kind of i think what sucks people in and lets them like just get lost in the experience yeah of these movies. i have the number written down nineteen thousand costumes mm-hmm. nineteen thousand. sure <laughs> 1800 crazy. hobbit feet just for the four hobbits Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. People crazy. Nothing yeah. half assed here. No. <laughs> Nothing phoned no. in. Yeah. No, just, yeah, exactly. And that, yes, because of the commercialism surrounding a lot of epics, and, you know, again, standing this next to something like Phantom Menace, it doesn't feel like a money grab in the same way because the IP is sort of so pure and hadn't been like mm-hmm. plumbed and right. recycled and, and all of that stuff. It's just like, here are these books. That maybe you read or your parents read. And it doesn't matter either way. We're going to plunge you so deeply into this world and really immerse you in it. Um, And maybe we'll sell a ton of like little gold rings on chains like (laughs) Brian is wearing right now. But that's that's not why we're making these movies, you know. Yeah, it's almost like the spirit of making the movie fits with the theme of the movie of this like courage of just doing this thing without Mm -hmm. a guarantee of success. And I think it's just beautiful. Right. And and also, Tolkien, who spent his entire life creating this world, he made one of the most comprehensive mythologies that 
that exists. Yeah. And then it's it's very fitting that then the movies are some of the most comprehensive movies in terms of all of the care that went into, you know, they're like, oh, we we sketched like character stuff inside of the armor so that the actor wearing them, like stuff yeah. that's totally unnecessary, but just shows how much they cared about it. Peter Jackson actually said, I know this is silly, but I want you guys to think of this as this was history and we are actually filming, we're recreating the events that actually happened on location where they happened. And he said it with a, I know this is silly. <laughs> like he's mm-hmm. not, he wasn't like, I actually believe this or anything. But everybody, when you watch the features and stuff, everybody went into this movie with just the the most amount of, this is not teehee, we're making a movie with trolls and dwarves and stuff. This was, we are making a serious thing. And you had the entire country of New Zealand yep. banding together to, to make this thing as extras, as voices in the choir, as jewelers and armorers and blacksmiths, you know, like everybody was involved in making this thing. And I think that just, and that shows. It's like we said before, I think it's just so pure. There's mm-hmm. there's something so pure about it through and through, which you really can't replicate or imitate. It's just this lightning in a bottle thing that happened. And I'm just so happy that it happened and that we can always have it, you know, to, yeah. to look back on. Because not many movie franchises can feel this way. And we'll get to The Hobbit eventually, but it certainly didn't <laughs> feel the same way to me. Right. <laughs> It's finally 2021, and I, for one, am very excited to spring into this new year with a renewed sense of purpose and discipline. One of the ways I do this is by reviewing productivity tips from some of my favorite creators. So I revisited Thomas Frank's Skillshare class, Productivity Masterclass, Create a Custom System That Works. In just 10 lessons that totaled just over an hour in length, I was reminded of all the techniques Thomas uses to stay productive and to work smart instead of hard. By incorporating his techniques, my new year has already felt like one of the best in recent memory. And what's even better is that Thomas just released a new class on Skillshare called Productivity for Creatives. Build a system that brings out your best. The lessons he discusses in this new class are so important for people who want to get serious about their creative output. Because, as author James Clear says, you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. So make the most of 2021 by joining Skillshare at Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay, where our listeners get a free trial of premium membership. Once again, that's Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode, and thanks to Thomas Frank for making me a little bit more productive. Well, and it has, Brian, what you were saying reminded me just of the travel to... um I don't know. It just it transports you away to a world that is so unfamiliar to you, but is completely real. Mm-hmm. So if you stand right. this against something like Avatar, you're just like, <laughs> OK, great. Pandora, that's a CGI world. And right. people really love Pandora. So I'm not <laughs> trying to say anything. <laughs> they get depression. Be careful because they yeah. don't live on Pandora. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Do they really still? I don't know. <laughs> Avatar fans, tweet at me. (laughs) I need to know. (laughs) The transportation element of when you watch these, it takes you away to this other world that is like, these mountains are real, the fields and valleys and everything about it is, yeah, I don't know. It just, this this thing that, yeah, this thing that Peter Jackson said about it feeling historical, Mm -hmm. I think it's because it's so rooted in place. Right. It's Yes. New Zealand, I think I want to say it's like 30% of New Zealand's, you know, income is like tourism, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not all Middle Earth. 
tourism. <laughs> right. But a lot of it is, I mean, New Zealand is just an incredible place. But a lot of it is, you know, these films popularized real places that still feel fantastical and yet they are real. There's something just magic about that fact that these movies access that I think also is a big part of this. There's something really special about you know, this film, I think more than two or three really has the classic quest feeling. You know, it's yeah. a, there's a band of characters and they have these episodic you know, scenes along this long quest across space and they cross through so many different environments. They're up on the tallest mountain peak. They're in forests. They're in a mine. They're, you know, they're mm-hmm. all over the place. And it's a, it's such pure fantasy because we've all played like video games since Lord of the Rings, like Skyrim or mm. which replicate the same experience of just traversing space yeah. across these like gorgeous environments. And, and this first film fellowship, you know, because all the places are real, it's yeah. so special. Like the, the, there's other films that have done the kind of quest, you know, format, but most of them don't take place in a country like New Zealand where mm-hmm. every location is on location and it's not CGI. It's not a set like they're actually on that mountain. They're actually on this right in this valley. It, it's so special for that reason. I, I can't think of any other quest movie that quite feels the same way where you have this many types of landscapes in one film i just want to watch shots of like people running on a hilltop with like helicopter shot and the music playing i'm like i could just watch that for an hour yeah yeah that feeling of exploration is really there right absolutely and another thing with uh with tolkien creating this world is he actually hated allegory he hated the idea Mm. that you would make a movie or, or, or a book that was di- speaking directly to what was going on at the time. So when people say, oh, is Sauron Hitler? He's like, no, Sauron is Sauron. Like it is, he wanted to create his own history from the ground up. And a lot of scholars championed that as the reason why it continues to feel timeless. Cause it's not, well, you have to understand what was going on in 1937 to understand yada, yada, you know? And I think that, I think that's true. And I don't think it's bad to, have allegory i don't think it's bad like i think art should speak to the time but i also think there's something special about creating something that is just meant to be its own thing Mm -hmm. at the same time you'll hear scholars in the same sentence talk about how tolkien hated technology and how the ring sort of represents technology and like (laughs) the trees are you know tearing Mm -hmm. saruman's tearing down the trees to make things da 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 and it's like okay so you hated allegory to (laughs) a certain extent but there is a (laughs) difference right But there's a difference between sort of speaking to something that is happening in this exact year versus pretty universal ideas that will always be there, you know? Right. Well, yeah, to me, it feels like it's it's just kind of like one step removed where like there could be evil happening today that is inspiring you. But instead of making it about that specific evil and just trying to recreate that, find the root evil, like evil as it exists in humanity, and then make a story about that more universal you know, human struggle of things. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that is why it does feel timeless is because it's, it's about these timeless things and power and humanity and what it means to exist with the earth that we live in and stuff. And so it's, it's not like there aren't ideas in there. It's that they're applied in such a way that it's, it can be accessed from any time and from any perspective and not mm-hmm. just one time and place. Mm-hmm. I think one reason the books are challenging to read is because Tolkien was openly trying to create a mythology for England. He was trying to make Mm -hmm. his own kind of from the ground up, like deep 
like myth for his country because he felt that England didn't have like a really like an ancient myth to draw from because of various invasions across history. And his work is so dense and there's so many like this guy, son of this guy, son of this guy. And there's like different (laughs) kinds of elves. And it's like, what, why is all this in here? But you look at ancient Greek myths and, you know, other kinds of mythologies and they are as weird and dense and almost too detailed. And so, and there's something about the movies that capture that sense of myth, like the way fellowship opens with Kate Blanchett's voice over black speaking, you know, these almost like timeless words. It, It almost feels like deep history at the beginning is being spoken of. I think every movie should begin with <laughs> Kate Blanchett yeah. speaking over black right. also. Like, I think that's never a bad idea. Right. <laughs> Leading into your opening title. Mm-hmm. Alex, what you were saying about this movie feeling like the most pure sort of story arc, uh, I really think is true in terms of it being a quest because it is just this mythological, simple quest narrative. Here's the ring. It has to go to Mordor and we're going to send these people on the way to get it. It is this, you know, the myth of the one, essentially, like Frodo is the only one that can take it there. And it's got that like Joseph Campbell, like hero's journey, mm-hmm. like deep mythology to it. But it's a, it's a very clean and simple story. And it does this it, like very, very well. And, and we can talk about this when we get to the other movies, brings together all of the people that are needed. Right. And so like a big part of the journey becomes about the interpersonal dynamics and the difficulties of the ring, which is what you were saying, Michael, which is like this is a movie about greed. Right. And like a lust for power and how different people are able to sort of like manage and navigate that as they're like striving toward a singular purpose. And so I think with this, especially, you know, the other movies in my mind get like convoluted when they become battle and war movies. Mm. But because this movie is so focused on these nine people, this particular collection of people Mm -hmm. and the team itself, I feel like there's something deeply personal about fellowship that makes it my favorite of the three movies for sure yeah so it's interesting because when these movies came out in theaters i had so much hype between films and you know i I read the books like after seeing fellowship in theaters so i my hype for these movies like grew exponentially and i uh-huh. it was i was checking the one ring.net every day for like <laughs> news updates about the next movie adorable because of that like i had so much invested in two towers and return of the king that like you know, those became the new exciting thing. Mm-hmm. But 20 years later, uh, revisiting these films, I think my favorite, if I, if I have to choose one piece of this saga to name as like my favorite, I think Extended Edition Fellowship of the Ring actually is my favorite mm-hmm. uh, because it feels like the most complete and intentional and kind of like steady of the three films. It feels like everything mm-hmm. in Fellowship was really deliberate and every shot is what it's supposed to be. And, and I think in Two Towers Return of the King has some of the highest highs, but also a lot of lows for me. And I could feel in the second two movies sometimes, oh, this kind of feels like a reshoot or like we had to kind of change the story here. So we're kind of twisting it on the fly. Whereas Fellowship, I don't know if this is true, but it feels almost entirely of like the original shoot or of the original plan in a way that there's parts of Two Towers and Return of the King that feel a bit more hastily put together as if they had to change something midstream. So anyway, yeah, just long story short, I was surprised upon this rewatch to realize, wow, the the one that I 
kind of had forgotten about because it was like not the exciting one for a while maybe is my favorite and and feels the most just like solid like this movie feels solid from start to finish yeah i basically had the same experience where my memory of it was i don't really ever need to watch fellowship again because like that's just like it's set up and blah 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 and like it was more fun to like watch the other two and watching them all again the Fellowship of the Ring like blew me away and made me the most emotional out of all of them. And mm. and I think there is yeah. a lot of things we can talk about with the filmmaking. I, I don't think you can say that any of the filmmaking in this feels like uh, elegant or like super deliberate. Like it still kind of feels like they had to shoot just a bunch of stuff. And then in the edit, they put it together and made it into a movie. This one does feel the most focused in terms of the things that it's tracking and that you as the audience are tracking, which I think helps make it feel the most cohesive because you're not having to set up, here's Rohan and here's all Mm. the people that live there. And and we can talk about all that in (laughs) in the two towers. What it does so powerfully that I was really impressed by is the way it sets up the stakes of the world and the ring and Mm -hmm. the way you really buy into it because it's kind of a goofy thing again me coming into this with not like a love of fantasy it's like wait somebody made a ring and somehow the ring right. equals all power <laughs> like vaguely <laughs> um there are these moments when you're watching the film where different people are reaching for the ring or when boromir and frodo are in the woods toward the end and it's just kind of like sean bean putting on like a one-act play of him right mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very like shakespearean yeah, yeah. right but it's it's so tense because you're like, oh, no, the ring is going to seduce him. And like no one else can put on the ring. Like it really makes you buy into this, the power of the ring and that Frodo is the only person that can bear it. And I think it does it in so many ways. But that's that was the thing I was really impressed by is that all the things, even the orcs and the Urukai, even when they look like CG from 20 years ago, you still there's danger attached to them. Mm-hmm. And so you feel the mm-hmm. weight and the threat that they're all up against. And I think that's, it's just really, really impressive how they were able to convey that and and make it such a thrilling filmic experience because you have the weight of those stakes with you the whole time. There's so much exposition they have to do in this first film. And mm-hmm. I think it's brilliantly done. The, yes. the way, like the first half of the film does so much exposition, but it does it across so many scenes. And all of those scenes are doing more than one thing at once and have conflict and tension. It's like there's so many rules and so many historical things to learn about to understand this story. And it's so effortless in this film. And it, and it, there's so many ways that it could not have been. Mm-hmm. But they really pulled it off in, in Fellowship. It's a movie that rewards watching again, because I think... Right. As a first, especially as a 14, 15 year old watching it the first time, it is hard to jump into this world because it is so dense and so thought out. And like you were saying, Trish, it feels real, but that means it's kind of like, wait, I missed the history lesson where I'm supposed to know what's going on and where is where. And Sauron is different than Saruman, but they're both (laughs) bad wizards. (laughs) (laughs) And like Aragorn is Strider, but he's also Aragorn, but he's also the king. Like there's, there's a lot of things and names to keep track of. And I think that's why when I watched it, when it came out on DVD, I turned on subtitles and that's when I was 
finally able to be like, oh, okay, that's that that person, that person. And then you do appreciate how much is being set up really efficiently and cinematically all at the same time. Which I think is why I appreciate the extended editions because especially of this movie, because you get those little character moments. You know, the I think probably my favorite little moment uh, is in this movie, which is when Frodo wakes up and Aragorn's singing uh, and he's singing about Baron and Luthien, which is this tale of Luthien elf maiden gave her love to a mortal man, da da da. And that's where they took they took from that uh, history to expand on Aragorn and Arwen's re- relationship because there wasn't a ton of that in the books. But, you know, Frodo wakes up and he hears Aragorn singing kind of sadly to himself. And then she said, he says, like, who was she, this woman you sing of? And he explains Luthien. She was immortal, but she gave her love to a mortal man. And Frodo says, what happened to her? And he just says, she died. And it's mm-hmm. just like this quiet moment that to me is just like, oh, now I know who you are. <laughs> like all these extended scenes, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them feel like the, you know, the the aliens Ripley's daughter scene where it's like, hey, mm-hmm. all, you know, all that stuff that explains who this character is. The studio is like, nah, get rid of that. Let's get to the action quicker, <laughs> you know, and that's not to say every single extended scene has that weight to it. But it's just it's one of those moments where I just feel like in four lines, I got to know Aragorn so much more than in the past previous hour of the movie. Michael, I think you were mentioning on this watch through of like, you're like, I'm going to do two towers extended, but I'm not doing fellowship extended. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it's ironic because revisiting the extended editions, I think fellowship by far is the best of the extended edition cuts because there's something about the pace. Brian, you mentioned it earlier. The movie almost feels faster paced in a weird way, even though it's like 30, 40 minutes longer. It it feels like every like chapter of the journey or every kind of episode in the journey feels more complete and feels more satisfying. So so you're not really in this kind of whiplash mode of like, okay, on to the next thing. Oh, this wow, this movie's still going. You're kind of more in this like episodic mindset. And the reason I love this extended cut more than the others, even though there are some crucial scenes I would put back into Two Towers, especially. Mm-hmm. In Two Towers extended cut and Return of the King extended cut especially, I could see a lot of why things were cut. It was like, well, this... Like, it's just not a great performance here, or this is kind of awkward. And like, this is just like good to cut out maybe for a lot of reasons and not Mm -hmm. just because of time. Fellowship of the Ring extended cut, almost nothing that's put back in feels like it was, you know, it would have been cut for reasons besides time. Like, Mm -hmm. like it was cut for time, but not because it was like, eh, it's not a great scene. All the little moments that are put back in are really special moments. And I agree with you. I think you feel a richer relationship with all the characters, including Boromir, like Boromir's story uh, feels more complete in the extended cut of fellowship to the point where his like drawn out death scene and drawn out kind of final monologue with Aragorn as he's dying feels more earned to me in the extended cut. So Mm -hmm. I encourage you, Michael, Mm. if you ever watch (laughs) these movies again, watch fellowship extended because I think it really is the best, best of them all. Well, and this was my first time watching the extended cuts all the way through. Like I'd kind of seen some of the missing scenes in the way that like we were doing, you know, when the DVDs came out where it's like, oh, check that scene out. That's cool. That, you know, adds this information. But I'd never up until, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we started planning for this, sat down and watched the extended cuts all the way through. And the fellowship cut super impressed me for the reasons you guys are talking about. And it reinforced the reasons that I like Fellowship the most. As I was saying, it's the most character driven Mm. of the movies. Like 
what is driving the plot are the character decisions here. And there are not all of these larger, like, you know, war sort of... The world of men will fall. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty, pretty grandiose. <laughs> it's yeah. just all of that stuff. And, and I don't, you know, I, I do find that compelling as the, the trilogy goes on. But this movie starts us super wisely off with a little history lesson. But the history lesson is contained and focused to the history of the ring. This is all you need to know. Here's the, you know, world of men and blah, blah, blah. But really, this is about the ring. And then the ring came to Bilbo. And that's all you need to know about it. Mm -hmm. Like, here's where it is now today. Amidst an extremely dangerous object, now a hobbit has it. And then we get to know a little bit about Bilbo, which is really important context. We get to know a little bit about Frodo. But then we are starting to see as these different characters that are interacting with the ring start to make their decisions and propel the plot. It's all out of their own, like, character sort of desires and obligations and i love the design of frodo here it really reminds me of um we were talking in the terminator 2 podcast talking about sarah connor as like an every woman mm. or just like a, an average person who is in no way special and in no way qualified to handle the sort of like hi, you're the mother of the revolution now, and right. therefore machines mm -hmm. will try to kill you for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, right? It's a very similar situation with Frodo, where, like, you know, a lot of times, you know, and I mentioned it earlier, the quote-unquote myth of the one, you have somebody like Harry Potter, um, who is already special in some way by the time that we meet him when he's 10 years old. Or you have somebody like Luke Skywalker, who, as it turns out, is already special. By the mm -hmm. time that we made him, you know, and, and Frodo is not special. It just happens to fall to him. And I think that there's something super powerful about that. The design of that character as a central figure where he just inherits the ring and he tries to give it away. Right. Like any good call to adventure, refusal of a call when he accepts that it has like come to him. And that's why I think the Council of Elrond is like so such an, a crucial scene in this. Talk about a midpoint. <laughs> <Yeah>. midpoint. <laughs> <laughs> but he realizes that it has fallen to him. Again, we have these difficult, the characters are continually being forced into difficult decisions that are then revealing character. And those decisions are propelling the events of the plot, not outside activities that are swooping in or coincidences. It's all character-driven stuff that takes them from point A to point B, which is almost... Almost to mortar, but they, not not at all. Not, <laughs> not at all, quite. apparently. <laughs> Two more movies. Yeah. yeah. Frodo is in every every Hobbit. Yeah. He is. <laughs> and, and like with Sarah Connor, Frodo is is targeted. Like Luke Skywalker could just go live with a friend forever and nothing would change. Totally. You know? <laughs> but like but both Frodo and Sarah Connor, it's like you this burden is on you now, whether you right. like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really compelling. Well, and I think you know, revisiting this film, I realized this really is Frodo's film in a way that the, the other last two, two are not. aren't. Yeah, because mm -hmm. yeah. he is the one making these proactive decisions at every major plot point. You know, when he mm -hmm. he has to decide, I can't give this ring to Gandalf. He'll turn into a monster, I guess. So I'm going to have to get this ring to Bree. OK, Gandalf's not here. I have to get it to Rivendell. But now I'm done. Like, I, I, I did my duty. Mm -hmm. Wait. Only a hobbit can actually handle this burden. I'm going to have to do it. And at the end of the movie, the real final decision is I'm going to have to do it alone. Like, mm -hmm. I can't even mm -hmm. have this 
these people around me because it's going to take all of them. Uh, and only Sam has, you know, has the good enough heart to, to right. resist it. Sam. Sam. It's a real arc. It's a, yeah. it's a beautiful kind of clean character arc. And at every step mm-hmm. of the journey, he's resisting mm-hmm. this truth. And the, and the truth, which Galadriel basically spells out for him, is like, if you don't do this, nobody will. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a really hard truth for Forty to accept as just a, an every hobbit, as you said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, well, and it's so powerful, I think, to me because it doesn't sugarcoat any of it like this mm-hmm. part of the epicness of these movies is i think also that it has every tone that it can be lighthearted mm-hmm. and goofy and silly and sometimes even like star wars star wars prequely and some of the like the goofy jokes that like it made uh-huh. like, oh, that's a little it's a little silly mm-hmm. but then it also goes to the like the the dark deep weight of responsibility to do this thing that is probably a death sentence but like no one else can. So are you going to be the person that does what that tries to do what no one else can do? And I think that, you know, being able to access all of those emotions and all those themes makes it not just epic on a visual grand scale, but also on an emotional scale. And it, it lets you th- that's again, but I was kind of struck by by the end is, is sort of that choice like you're talking about where Frodo realizes he has to do it alone and is still willing to do it. And then Sam is like, okay, yeah, you have to do it alone, but I'm going with you. Like, <laughs> yeah. I just love what, what a beautiful <laughs> line. I yeah. Just, yeah. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. <laughs> it was weird because I know, like, I always liked Sam. And I feel like people have talked about, like, Sam's the real hero. And, like, mm. there's a lot of love for Sam. But I didn't feel it until this, like, this time around. Just the dedication and just the absurd level of friendship. Loyalty. Selflessness. Yeah. 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 Loyalty. Yeah. So beautiful. I mean, and I, and I, I think that that is one of the central things that endear this particular, you know, sort of myth of the one to people, because it actually, we see how bad Frodo is at being the one, mm-hmm, right? Right. Like, he cannot stay on his own two feet. He falls <laughs> constantly. And he's he always gets, offering other people the ring. He's like, here, you want this <laughs> thing? <laughs> yeah. He gets stabbed. He gets picked up by tentacles. Like he's always again. being, yeah, right. God, poison foams out of his mouth constantly. Yeah, yeah. He has a rough time in these films, um, <laughs> and even in Fellowship. But but I think that that is the emphasis on. Yes, he is the one, and he is the only one who can bear this burden, and that is a a, a decision he ultimately has to like, or a, a responsibility he ultimately has to shoulder for himself. That in itself is a powerful arc that we see him take, but also the acceptance of, I actually can't do it alone alone, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. And and some of our best other, like, grand myths have this element to them. Like, if you think about A New Hope, where, you know, Luke ultimately does blow up the Death Star by himself, but, you know, Han comes back and, like, swoops in. And, and we love to see the, you know, Luke and Han and Leia together. And, like, Harry Potter has got Ron and Hermione. and like he can't do it himself because Harry Potter's also bad at being the one. 
Like (laughs) (laughs) when we get that sense of team and community and sharing um, the responsibility in our modern sort of myths, I think that's when they're at their most powerful. And I think this, this example with Frodo and Sam, I mean, all of the fellowship, we want the fellowship to be together, but we realize it's just like too many people and too much temptation. And, and, you know, the movie does a really good job of straining those relationships and kind of fracturing them out before we get to two towers. But that sweetness and that the loyalty dependency acknowledgement piece of this is really hard and I need help with it. I think is part of the reason we love Frodo and Sam and love these movies so much. Well, because I feel like there's not even like a surface level of being the one is cool. Like in Harry Potter, like Mm -hmm. like Harry Potter gets to do cool magic and go on all these fun adventures. And like Luke Skywalker kind of famous in like a way that's fun. Yeah. 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 Right. And like, yeah, Luke gets like if you're a Jedi, you get to at least have a lightsaber and like fly in space. Like you get to do cool things and almost every other like the one story that we have. And like for Frodo, like it's only about the burden. It's like you get these moments with your like dear friend. But otherwise, it's just hard. And I feel like it makes, you know, it just makes his willingness to be the one that much more uh, compelling. Yeah. He's basically almost like a sacrificial lamb. Like, it's like, Frodo, we need your body to carry this ring. It's going (laughs) to kill you, basically. And it kind of, we'll get to it in Return of the King, but it kind of does. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. And so it's really a story of, like, total sacrifice on his part. And then Sam just being the best and getting his body actually into the volcano. (laughs) 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 yep but it is cool that this movie does have room for them as a group to be heroes and i think it has just the best hero shot of all time of the fellowship after being formed like cresting the mountain with the fellowship theme blasting for the first time in like full blast yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, that's just a hundred percent cinematic win like what (laughs) else do you want from a movie right at that moment yeah yeah, so you have the hobbits who are very endearing and compelling, but have no skills, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we were talking about Jaws, we talked about the, like team assembly and mm. how it's really smart character design to have your protagonist have all of the willpower and responsibility, but none of the skills. And that's Frodo to a T. He has <laughs> mm-hmm. zero skills. But Sam doesn't have any more skills, particularly, and neither do the other two hobbits. You have Gandalf. Very skilled, very cool. But he does, you know, get captured at a certain point in this movie. So I think that the supporting character design and particularly Aragorn, who I think is this probably the second protagonist, if you want to say that, of this entire series. Yeah, right. Is a really, really smart design because he has all of the skills, but basically none of the willpower where he doesn't want any responsibility. So you have sort of the inverse strengths mm. that you, we have from Frodo and mm-hmm. Sam, who are just like pure force of will. We are tiny hobbits and can't do anything. And we're going to go to Mordor. And then you have Aragorn, who's like, I can go to Mordor. I have no problem with that. I have a huge sword and all of this like skill. And like, I'm a ranger and blah, blah. I'm all of this worldly <laughs> wise ranger dude. And I'm like 80 years old or something. Right. 87. Thank you very much. 87. A natural long life, a naturally gorgeousness. Good looks. But he has his own problems with responsibility where he doesn't want to be the king and has tried to avoid it pretty much his entire life. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool to see that. You have somebody like Legolas 
and Gimli who have their own sort of unique version of skills that they bring to this, but they also bring in that note of like a descent and mm, like right. conflict that, you know, every great team needs to create that ebb and flow. And then of course, Boromir is the perfect mirror image of, of Aragorn where mm-hmm. he has all right. of the responsibility and he has the skills, but he's sort of weak willed about it where he, you know, wants the ring for himself. He has natural human temptations. He's really what Aragorn is afraid to, that he will become. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's afraid right. of power oh. in a way that Boromir wants to seize power and use it. Mm-hmm. And look, if you need someone to have an epic death scene, <laughs> Sean Bean's your guy. Sean Bean. <laughs> I think it's his best. Like, I know he has a lot of good ones. It's a good but one. Like, this is one of the best death scenes, I think, in like movie history. Also, this is I some big arrows. For sure. Right. With Aragorn, though, the fact that Viggo Mortensen was a last minute replacement is just the most what? bonkers thing ever yeah. because he's, he's yeah. just like one of the few characters or not one of the few but if i had to like rank the character the actors you could not replace with anybody it would like he would be way up there maybe just under Big Ian time. McKellen mm-hmm. and he like got off the plane and had to film the weather top fight the next day and right. <laughs> ridiculous uh, yeah and he's such it, it's great because he's such a, a dedicated actor too he was he's so interested in what every facet of the story was he would go to the costumers and say how do i sharpen the sword and uh if you know when we're on the go and they'd say good point and they'd craft a little whetstone pocket for him you know and he he was like always asking questions about like where did this come from that kind of thing which you know could probably be a little bit annoying but it's vigo mortensen he's really pretty so um <laughs> I'm probably, yeah but yeah he just seemed it just seemed like he was such a a great person to have around uh as the sort of leader of of this cast but also this fellowship um and, and again just the fact that Stuart townsend could have been the character just seems Which is so, so mind-boggling yeah <laughs> he's part of that lightning in the bottle thing of how yeah. did this miracle happen because he he's also this really unique actor like he has this energy right. and this kind of old soul quality to him very almost much. like a little bit like almost androgynous at times like he, he's masculine mm-hmm. but in this very interesting way and all those qualities add up to a really interesting like lead hero uh which which would could be really boring it could there could be a very generic approach to this character as just like moody swords sword swinging guy who <laughs> gets to be king at the end but instead he's a really you just feel there's a lot of history behind this character a lot of depth and a lot of like inner like an inner world happening inside of Aragorn throughout the saga so Man, yeah, what a what a stroke of luck they got him at that last second. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the performance is amazing. The writing of the character, though, is also really smart because he's so reserved. Right, he's, he's quiet. It, it, it gives him, yeah, mm-hmm. it gives him that air of mystery that really works. So, like, think about the first scene in which we meet him where they're at that tavern. He's got the cloak over half of his face. Just like, I don't know who that is, but I want to talk to him. Um, like, <laughs> it. I like not my thought, but yeah. You have to, in order to find out anything about him, you have to directly ask him or, and he probably won't tell you, or basically you're going to find yourself in a situation where it's going to be revealed that he speaks Elvish and he grew up with the elves, but it all just sort of comes out of, you know, sort of being forced to reveal more and more about himself. That reticence 
that we feel about his sense of like leadership and how that he does not want to be a leader. He does not want to be a king Mm -hmm. extends into all of these other aspects of the character writing and personality. Right. So he has to have like this sort of quiet presence and confidence. And he does the way that you're talking about, Alex, where you gravitate toward him. There's something very magnetic, not just about how gorgeous he is, but also he he carries himself with this like, yeah, groundedness, weightiness, sense of history, all the things you're talking about. And at the same time, he doesn't extend himself any further than he needs to. There's this reluctance that is so important to see it drawn out over the course of these three movies where it's like, you have the potential. Anybody can look at you and see that you have the potential, but you don't want it for whatever reason. And like pulling that out and pulling that out and pulling that out becomes the work of the screenplay over the course, all three of these screenplays. And I know that that's a change from the book. And I, it's like one of the most brilliant changes that they could have made. Like instead of having a character walking in going, I'm the king now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Like giving us instead this sort of mysterious person. uh, It's just, oh, what good supporting character design. They basically made him an introvert, which is cool. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like an introverted fantasy hero. uh, Yeah. You're not expecting. Yeah. There's the old, um, I forget who said it, but the sort of old adage that the, the, the people who, least want to rule are the people most qualified to rule and the people exactly. who want to rule, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's very much reflected in, in Aragorn and reflected in the opposite direction in Boromir, who yep. is clearly, right. you know, Boromir. And then you get more with Denethor uh, as, as you get into the second uh, and third movie. But this, uh, the idea of, well, why shouldn't we have this, this power, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. And I do really miss Boromir in the following movies. I like Me it, too. I just love him. Like, I love Sean Bean. Like, he's just great, obviously. But having that, like, local antagonist is, <laughs> yeah. is uh-huh. nice. Like, it just, it creates, there's just always this sense of, yeah, danger, even when they're working together as a team. And, and some of the other people have that generally. We're like, elves and dwarves don't get along. And they might, like, yell at each other. But Sean Bean is like, he's on your team and you need him, but also he's the biggest threat that you have right now. And so I I just really enjoy that dynamic being ever present and especially watching it again, because, you know, again, the first time I saw it, I was like, I don't understand who this person is and how he's not somebody's a king, but somebody's a steward of a place. And so he's <laughs> I, I not will really say the king. That's kind of a problem with fellowship, even in the extended cut you still don't really have a sense of what Gondor is sure. or like what, right. nope. like what they're talking about. <laughs> nope. And there's so much weight put on like, you know, he has a whole speech to Aragorn about the towers of Ecclesian and like, have you ever seen it? It's like, I, I kind of want to see it. So I know what you're talking about. We'll see it eventually. And we see it for a split second when Gandalf goes there to read some scrolls, but we don't know what it is anyway. So there's a lot of like talk of Gondor without having any visual reference. And that is, that's rough for, for like a first time viewer or people, somebody who hasn't watched the whole trilogy, you only really understand what they're talking about upon reflection. Right. But I feel like the, the performances and the drama there get the point across. Sure. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. there was a power struggle. And, and I love how sad Boromir is about himself after he tries to take the ring from yeah. Frodo. And I that's why I love his death scene so much, is that it's, it's like this mini redemption. It of is. Like, I've mm-hmm. failed, and the last thing I can do is, like, sacrifice my life for... I just, like... Just the climax of this movie is also like amazing, I think. Like the, the entire battle scene and as you know, 
Frodo is trying to escape and the fellowship is kind of splintering. It's just so cool. Like it's a fun action scene, but it also has all these character moments and Boromir sacrificing himself and the way he dies and like arrow after arrow and he's going to fight through until he just can't anymore. So you really hate that guy. <laughs> so then the buildup when like the, the boss battle is great with Aragorn right, and the, the big boss, Urukai. Right. And he so like, stabs him and it's like, okay, he did it. But no, he didn't. He's pulling him into the... It's like, what? And then he cuts off his head. It's like, yeah, that's so cool. Uh, anyway, so I just love... I, I feel like this scene also... Or this movie has maybe the best climax for me anyway, because it's it's small enough scale yeah. that I can follow everything. And there's emotionality attached to each part that you're cutting between. And you get to see Legolas kill people with his bow and arrow. And I think that's when these movies won me over, actually, is when I saw what the elves could do. And I was like, oh, I'm an elf. I want to be an elf and I want to do that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Awesome. Okay, well, so there's so much to talk about with Lord of the Rings, but luckily we do have two more episodes to come. So why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Fellowship of the Ring. So I really love the build-up to Moria. Just the entire Moria sequence, Mm -hmm. I think, is excellently set up and then executed action thriller. It's kind of like how we talked about in, I think, Jaws and like Alien, like all these movies where they spend the first half of the movie Mm -hmm. building up the monster so that then the second half you understand the power and why it's scary and it makes that that so much more thrilling. I feel like the Moria sequence basically works in that way where we we know that Gandalf doesn't want to go there. We know that the dwarves woke up something bad. So they say that they're forced to go that way anyway. You see, even even before they get in, you know, they get to the door and there's like a riddle and they're trying to figure out how to open the door. Like there's ominous like shots of the lake. You like, you know, something bad mm-hmm. is in that lake. But then they get in through the door and it's like, OK, well, I guess the lake stuff didn't matter. But then they have to come back out because it's like, no, Mori is worse than we thought. But then when they come back out, the lake has a big monster in it. And so mm-hmm. they, they have to go. And so just even that back and forth has a like you know, a buildup of tension that then gets to explode and traps them in Moria. And then it it kind of resets and has that same buildup again where they're going through and it's dark and it's quiet and then they find the tomb. And then is it Mary or is it Pip? That's- it's Pippin. <laughs> yeah. Bold of a took. It's always Pippin. <laughs> yeah. I feel so bad for him because he literally causes all the problems like, yeah. across yeah. the He's movies. He's my favorite. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gandalf. <laughs> I saw a white tree in a courtyard of stone. <laughs> anyway, so it, it just when he, you know, touches the armor that falls down the well that makes all the noise that then awakens everything that is bad to come yes. at them. Mm-hmm. You're afraid like they've spent enough time mm-hmm. building up that fear. And then it's the fight scene that happens is like epic and cathartic and such a cool fight. And I remember even just like watching the making ofs and like 
it was, you know, CGI at some point. We can talk about this in the two towers because this was a big turning point yeah. for CGI. Oh, my God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And especially we'll talk about Gollum and all that stuff for sure. Anyway, so the catharsis of then seeing that fight scene explode and the reveal of the huge troll and then that building too. But we know there's something even worse. Right. And it's the Balrog. And so it mm-hmm. just it, it has this great flow, that whole sequence of build, 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 build tension. And then once the like the rock has been pushed to the top of the mountain, it just starts rolling and it picks up speed and it doesn't stop until fly you fools. And it's just yeah. such an amazing sequence. I think it's a model of a midpoint to an end of act two mm-hmm. descent. Mm-hmm. It is like mm. one of the best that I've, and it is a literal descent, but like one of the best ever, in my opinion, where from the minute of the, you know, the fellowship gets together and then like the journey goes well, goes well, essentially starts to go worse and worse and then just worse and worse and worse all the way down. And the whole Moria sequence is so masterful at that. And it is a huge part of a big part of why it feels as powerful, I guess, as it does is what you're talking about, Michael. It's the foreshadowing Mm -hmm. where the the screenwriters are so good. And I know this is different than the book because in the book, Gandalf was the one who wants to go through Moria, right? And so in this movie, it's a perfect example of closing off all of the other logical options the all of the roads are being closed to them and we also know that saruman wants to them to go through moria so there's all of these plants along the way where it's like bad things happen there and yet they can't go any other way and then it leads to the perfect crisis point with the death of the mentor it's just brilliant and and like even though it's a really long second half of the second act (laughs) there's not a bit of it that's wasted because every scene gets worse right and i think it's also a brilliant choice different from the book once again to have frodo be the one who has to make the call to go through moria which makes the aftermath of gandalf's death so much more meaningful you know that that amazing shot of elijah wood where like the single tear falls and like the look on his face you feel the weight that he that he feels of like, this is kind of my fault. Basically (laughs) I chose this route and now Gandalf is dead. Mm -hmm. So yeah, great, great writing. What a way to like ratchet it up from the book to make all these choices more personal and character driven and have heavier consequences on the characters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then of course the most sad of them is Orlando Bloom who says, I cannot talk about it for me. The grief is still too near. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He's an elf. I liked Orlando Bloom this time around. I know, like... I dislike him less now than I used to. <laughs> yeah, I've always I, I been fine like with him. I feel like he works. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like elf. at the time, it was like... He's such was, a dork. It was he cool is to such make a fun dork. of Orlando Bloom. <laughs> and you know, who else is a dork? Will Turner, which is why he works in Pirates. Mm, but, right. <laughs> totally. Um, no, but we talked about with um, Captain America Civil War that every act feels like a like its own mini movie, you know, and that's what mm-hmm. you get. Like, as you were saying, Trisha, like just the build up of the midpoint to the end of act two, it just feels like it's such, it's its own compact little thing that obviously ties very well to what comes before and after it. Exactly. In some ways, the perfection of that sequence, it makes it a little, it's a long act three that follows that because of the necessity of going mm-hmm. through Lothlorien and the Galadriel sequence, all of which is doing important narrative work. Like, you know, Galadriel is the one who essentially like lays it out for Frodo. Mm-hmm. what he's got to do so we need all that and you know it's not just because it's in the book 
you know, th- those scenes literally are slow, like like time they moves are. slower in the Elven Forest, and everybody walks slow and talks slow. And it's like they were shot at thirty frames per second instead of twenty four <laughs> right. frames per second, right. which yeah. they were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it, that's the one part of Fellowship that if you if you are watching it all at once, you know, not breaking it up. Like I actually did an experiment of breaking up the extended editions into like one disc per night, which is like one mm-hmm. half movie per night. And that was a really fun way to watch it because mm-hmm. every, you know, like two hour movie felt kind of complete and like a fun chapter in like a six part series. And in that viewing, uh, the Lothorian scene didn't drag at all for me. It was like just kind of the midpoint of an episode. But when you're watching it all at once in a theater, I, I remember that kind of being like, where is this movie going? We're mm-hmm. kind of, and I think part of it is because there's so much amazing momentum happening up through Gandalf's death. Right. It's like, you know, you want it to keep ratcheting up, but because of what the story is and what the book is, you have this lull for a while. I feel like Kate Blanchett turning green always kind of wakes you up, though. Right? I feel like it's a- <laughs> Instead of a Dark Lord, you would have a queen! <laughs> I really could not careless about Lothlorien. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Like, I'm, I, like, it looks cool, I guess, you know? It's so but... shiny. And like, if you look at her eyes, you know, there's like, they held up like a net of Christmas lights so that yeah. her eye lights would, like the catches would be like magical. <laughs> I like the elves. I don't know. Definitely like broke my brain when she turned green on the first movie. <laughs> and like, it's like, what is happening? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So t- that I mean, was your lesson, I guess. <laughs> well, it was I feel the like foreshadowing, right? Right. There's there's a lot of lessons, and they're all, all kind of like they blend together because there's just so much to take yeah, away. Totally. But Alex, what's what's your lesson? My lesson is about the way magic is portrayed in these movies, mm. uh, and there's something that I think was really a smart choice. I mean, this movie came out the same year as the first Harry Potter movie, which is a very like CG. I would say bouncy kind of magic well the chris columbus versions especially yeah. right the first couple right. of movies yeah right we can talk about bounciness in the two towers <laughs> sure, continue. sure continue but well i'm talking about magic though like like the actual mm-hmm. use of magic mm. is is kind of invisible it's like an invisible nature of magic you know the way mm. gandalf and Sauron what like wield magic you don't see like yeah something come out of their staff and swirl around and like become a monster like it's mm-hmm. it's all kind of it's like it's more like Jedi force powers, if anything, like in that scene mm-hmm. in, in the tower. So I think it's a really smart choice because one, the movies age better because of that. I think there's something really cool about seeing Sauron bring down the mountain with like a lightning bolt. It, it just there's no that's like a timeless image. That's not like yeah. a, a, a weird 20 years ago image. And I also like how the magic isn't like an all powerful thing. Like nobody's Superman in these movies. Like Gandalf is very like fallible and he sometimes lacks confidence and is really unsure of himself, especially in in the first half of the film, the way Ian McKellen plays Gandalf is he's not this mentor figure. Who's like super badass who knows everything. Like he is kind of worried that he made a mistake maybe with Bilbo and this ring and like, Oh crap, maybe it's too late. Maybe like, keep it here, Frodo. I'm in, I'm in a rush. I got to go find out what this ring is. And I, I really think that's a, it's, it's a great choice because you don't feel safe. You don't feel like Gandalf has it. You know, he's always right. also mm-hmm. kind of scrambling and a little bit confused and worried and scared. So yeah, I, I think it's, it, it helps to add to that sense of darkness and danger in this trilogy. There is no, you know, there's not an all powerful magic mentor that can definitely save the day. He is as fallible as the rest of the characters. 
And even though he does save them, you know, he has to sacrifice himself and Moria. So, yeah, yeah you get the sense that and, and this was going to be part of my lesson, but you get the sense that he himself is intimidated by like the magic in the world, right? Sort of in the same way that Jedi are, where it's like the force is so much bigger than we are. Like we mm. can do things with the force and like Gandalf and Saruman are both sort of like wielding magic, but you get the feeling that it doesn't come from them necessarily, that they're kind of messing with things that are out of their control to an extent. And that does like create that sense of precariousness or a lack of safety that I think is super important for the, uh, you know, the entire sort of theme of this movie about the difficulty of the journey. And I love the scene in Moria where Gandalf is sitting there going like, I don't know which way to go. <laughs> like, right, right, <laughs> right. He's very honest, too, and kind of like funny in that way. He's just like, yep, I don't know. This way smells better. So (laughs) screw it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Totally. That the magic is invisible does let there be like mystery to it. That in in this case does work. Like, I don't really need to know the rules of the magic in this particular instance. Right. Which is actually the rest of my lesson, which is you don't have to explain every single little thing, Mm -hmm. basically. Where I tried to read these books um, after the movies came out and I got really bogged down in them because I was like, nothing's happening. I've been reading about this history thing and this language thing for, you know, pages and pages. And I, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no action going on. This particular adaptation with Fellowship does a really excellent job of not telling us more than we need to know in the moment, which I think is just really i I don't know it's so smart like you want to know more about hobbits and hobbit life like Mm -hmm. you know you want to know more about (laughs) michael doesn't he's shaking his head (laughs) i think michael's the only person in the world who doesn't want to live in hobbiton and like Uh, enjoy the shire that sounds terrible (laughs) you're wrong i so want to be i want to be in a hobbit hole with my baked goods and garden and lush green fields I think I think hold on are we just learning because like Mad Max we talked about you don't like sand because it's coarse and it gets everywhere but like <laughs> you also do you hate just, grass <laughs> right do you just not like the outdoors <laughs> I mean yeah no who no one likes the outdoors people what? think they like a lot the of outdoors. people like the outdoors people like to visit the outdoors <laughs> nobody lives in the outdoors anymore wow okay. this is a whole spinoff conversation you, you can live in a say. little cute hobbit hole in the middle of the outdoors and it'd be lovely yeah, right? Brian and I, Brian and I are going to talk about our trips to New Zealand next time. Our, yeah, we're talking and how beautiful it is, Michael. Anyway, trips. yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so th- this movie just does a good job of staying focused on the characters and staying focused on what we really need to know at any given moment. And I agree with you; it can be disorienting at times. Where I'm like, "What the hell is Gondor? I don't understand a lot of the politics and other things about this world. Why do elves and dwarves hate each other? No one ever tells me that, mm. right? Like, well." The Hobbit movies. We do, we do get to. some answers oh, in the Hobbit oh, movies. Oh, good. Have yeah. fun. <laughs> but I just think that the movie does a really good job of staying focused. And it reminded me, so we did a video on exposition when we were talking about The Matrix. And one of the like original lessons that we had talking about The Matrix was save exposition that isn't needed until like late, much later on. Mm-hmm. And this movie is really good at, it gives us some stuff up front and but it also sprinkles a bunch of it throughout and then some of it it just leaves out completely and i think that's part of why we're able to stay hooked into the characters where we are just sort of forced to go with what we know 
the simplicity of the myth, the simplicity of the journey, and the in right. the characters' inner conflicts. Because we're not constantly thinking about how does the magic work or why are elves immortal? Some of us still wonder about that, but <laughs> we don't need to know it to enjoy fellowship. We'll get into right. the Arwen uh, stories in the next couple of movies. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I think it's like it's a. What's nice about the fellowship is that it, it does, like you're saying, have this simplistic story at its core, so it doesn't need to right. worry about explaining that stuff. Like I don't need to know why Gandalf and Saruman can trip each other with their staffs. Like right. they're fighting, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Right. Whereas in the Two Towers and in Return of the King, you do need to understand like what's going on in the world. Exactly. Mm. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, so my lesson is actually about the humor in these movies um, where you know, we talked about how everybody was so committed to taking this production seriously and how that comes through. And it, I think it comes through not only the production, but also in the writing and the directing where everyone believes in this world, which means you never get a wink to the camera or, or anybody throwing right. the story under the bus. You never get a character going, a magic ring, a wizard. Like, what is this right. nonsense? You know, you might get the occasional, they have a cave troll. You don't get the, the movie never once is going, Hey, we know this is goofy, but stay with us. They're saying, this is, this is not goofy. This is right. what it is. But these movies are really funny. And I think what's cool is that the humor doesn't come from making fun of the movie or the situation, the humor comes by writing characters with a sense yeah. of humor. So you have the, the ones that you come to mind the most is Mary and Pippin and Gimli. Mm -hmm. Their character design is that they crack jokes and they always find the humor and everything. So they are making jokes because the characters are making jokes, not because the writer is writing a joke that this character right. is going to say straight faced, you know. But then you also have all the other characters. You have Gandalf, who's really funny and uh you know not just ian mckellen's incredible performance which we'll get into more but just gandalf loves making jokes yeah. and, and you know that kind of thing and then even aragorn and legolas and you know everybody can find humor in a situation and can find joy in a situation and because those characters are finding the humor and the joy in this epic sort of bleak situation we as the audience are experiencing that joy too. And I think that goes such a, such a long way into making these big, overwhelming movies feel enjoyable and entertaining to watch. And it makes you feel like you want to be part of this world and, and kind of spend time with these characters. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think the levity, as we've said many times, is like helps you, yeah, be willing to go to the dark places. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. If it's just dark, that it's not dark, like the dynamics are important. And when it's fun, it's fun. So like put fun in to your adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it is very, it's a lovely experience and it, it maybe didn't have to be like, that's maybe not the obvious choice to make a movie about, you know, a death sentence to take a ring to right. the devil. Like that <laughs> maybe doesn't have to be fun. Uh, right. Well, because I, th I think the, there's a world in which someone says we're taking this really seriously. Therefore it has to be serious. Grim. Therefore we and have somber. to make, you know, like the most somber kind of staunch uh, version of this. And that's not what they made. Thankfully. Yeah. The Zack Snyder version. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody's already dead. High contrast. <laughs>
Cool. Well, uh, why don't we go around and say uh, what besides the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies <laughs> we, uh, we have managed to be watching recently. Trisha, what have you been watching recently? I have a 2021 movie for y'all. Whoa. So what? It's five uh, days into... Okay. I know. This one dropped on VOD on January 1st, and that is the day that I watched it. It is a movie called Shadow in the Cloud, starring Chloe Grace Moretz. Um, and it's directed by, written and directed by a filmmaker named Roseanne uh, Lang. It's also a New Zealand co-production. Mm. This is a World War II fantasy action horror movie? Question um, mark? Yeah. <laughs> so Chloe Grace Moretz plays a female World War II pilot, which, as you guys know, is in my interest because I wrote a book about mm-hmm. women Air Force Service pilots in World War II. They did exist. They flew planes. Um, so she plays- The book is called Taking Flight, the Nadine Ramsey story, available on Amazon now. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, so um, there- a really remarkable group of women in history that really haven't been written much about. But this movie takes a, a, you know, one of these women Air Force Service pilots, essentially, and drops her into this very contained sort of like weird horror thriller thing. She's essentially stowing away on a cargo plane. And there's a male crew that they find out she's there and they're just like being sexist and terrible to her. But then there's this sci-fi sort of fantasy element that comes in. And I don't want to tell you too much about it. You should just watch the trailer for it. The trailer will tell you all you need to know about it. It is goofy. It is weird. It is like really contained and low budget and just like an inventive bizarre way to do this kind of like actiony thing it's just a lot of fun i don't know it checked a lot of my boxes and at the end they have all of this real footage of women air force service pilots both from britain who flew with the air transport auxiliary and from the united states the women air force service pilots the wasps they have all this real footage of these real women including some that are in my book so i like they popped up on screen during the credits and i was like oh my god it's barbara london and like (laughs) women that i just got to research and write about when i was working on my book so there's that's so cool this movie is totally not historically accurate (laughs) is it about gremlins maybe but (laughs) It's like, it's, I don't know, cool and fun and bizarre. And um, yeah, it's great. Shadow in the Cloud. You can check it out on VOD. It's streaming in a couple different places. Very cool. Alex, what have you been watching? So I watched Sound of Metal on Amazon Prime. It's a really awesome movie uh, starring Riz Ahmed. uh, He's a heavy metal drummer who starts to lose his hearing, which just totally upends his life. It's a really well done, beautiful character study of this guy and Riz Ahmed's performance, like give him all the awards. He is so good in this role. So yeah, not much more to say besides just it's a beautiful, well done character study with a great central performance. I really, really loved it. And it does really interesting things with sound design. So watch it with some good speakers or headphones because they really play with his experience of losing his hearing and going in and out of that. And it's just top to bottom, beautifully done movie, Sound of Metal. Cool. Very cool. I'll, I will. I will second that. Uh, Olivia Cook is also in it. Yes. She is awesome. Uh, and and yeah, the sound design stuff is really cool. They do things where when the camera is over his shoulder, you are hearing you know certain sound design. But then when the camera is sort of like just in the room watching characters, then you're hearing what's actually going on in the space. Hmm. And yeah, really, really beautiful film that I just watched too. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Well, what else have you been watching, Brian? In addition, since we are recording on January 5th, uh, I watched Death to 2020 mm. on Netflix. 
which is by Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones, who created Black Mirror. And it's a mockumentary similar to Charlie Brooker's Screen Wipe, which if you're a British listener, you'll probably be familiar with. Uh, It just details the events of 2020 using interviews with the cast of mostly fictional characters. So the characters are played by Sam Jackson, Hugh Grant, Lisa Kudrow, Leslie Jones, Kumail Nanjiani, Krista Milioti, uh, and a few other like British faces that you might recognize. Uh, Tracy Ullman as the Queen, mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth Part Two, I think she refers to herself as. And it's narrated by Lawrence Fishburne. And it's it's been reviewed poorly as not being like of the caliber of Black Mirror or Screen Wipe. I, I didn't watch it expecting it to be. I kind of imagine they threw this thing together like a month ago or something <laughs> right. mm-hmm. just to sort of be like, let's let's just kind of we need kind of to take a take a breath. Uh, it's only 70 minutes or so. And it's just it's fun and irreverent. And then a couple of times it actually gets kind of serious where you're where you're not expecting it to. So it's kind of it does a nice little when your guards down kind of thing. And it's just, you know, it's been a ridiculous year. And it was just kind of a nice way to nice way to uh, to sort of shut it down. Yep. Yeah. It's been a black mirror <laughs> of a year. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Oh goodness. Shut it all down. Yeah. So I've been uh, w- re- watching, finishing, continuing to watch Mandalorian uh, because hey. season two happened and everyone was like, oh, my God, like it saved Star Wars and everyone else. It's the best thing ever. But uh, and so I, I finished <laughs> the first season. So so I'm not caught up yet, but it okay. made me go back and finish the first season because I had made it three episodes in. Wow. And someone was like, episode four is when stuff starts to happen. So I watched episode four and I was like, oh, this is really good. I enjoyed this. And then it kind of went back to like stuff not happening for a little bit. And then like the final two episodes, like stuff kind of happened. And I was like, hey, well, stuff kind of <laughs> happened. Uh, anyway, long story short, <laughs> if you revisit our Star Wars episode where I talked about my, the Mandalorian, my feelings have not really changed, but I'm excited to start season two and see uh, where they go with it. This is not selling like- me on... Investing yeah. in this first season. I, well, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about season two right. when you have finished it, which hopefully you will. I yeah. don't know if but, I need to hear what you have to say. I love it. I don't need a. I don't need. Star I didn't say Wars I needed to hear it. I said I'm interested in my life. Get out well, of here. See, and I, I think there's a really interesting conversation at some point to be had about like what Star Wars is to different people. Sure. Because I think I think that's what's like experiencing this has shown me is that like we all started from the same place but <laughs> what star wars means to people yeah. is clearly very different for different people hmm. so that's just kind of an interesting thing to be thinking about in the background but i'll report in once i've finished season two because i'm excited because i hear things and blah 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 but i won't say them out loud okay awesome this has been our conversation on the first lord of the rings film the fellowship of the ring thank you again to the patrons that made this possible and made it happen helped us get to our goal we'll be announcing our new goal soon coming coming up soon uh and next week we will be back with the two towers as we continue our journey through middle earth beyond the screenplay is produced by vince major and our editor is eric schneider i'm michael tucker and i've been joined today by Trisha rand brian bittner and alex Cayeros. all of our twitter handles are in the show notes send us a tweet and let us know your thoughts on the fellowship of the ring and patrons head in the discord and let's start talking about the lord of the rings and yeah. i want to yeah. hear everybody's like journeys with them and when they saw it and how they feel about it now and how it's aged i think there's so a lot of like film history like wrapped up and also just the funness of Lord of the Rings. So uh, I look forward to all the conversations on our Discord. Thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next week in our episode on the Two Towers. Bye everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.